This is The Think Tank with Dr. Mike O'Neill talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. The Think Tank. Okay, we're here with Francine Hardaway. Welcome back to the Think Tank, Francine. Oh, nice to be back. Nice to be here after last year. Yeah, nice to be anywhere other than cooped up, shut up, and uh, isolated, I guess. You know, I was thinking the other day, there was something you did many years ago that has enduring, uh, an enduring lesson. And um, you brought a book out of it called Foster Mom, of which you were one. And I want to start by giving people what what my takeaway from the story was. Uh, you became a foster mom, adopted a couple of kids, and uh, my enduring lesson oh, on it. I didn't adopt them. Their mother wouldn't sever them, so I never could adopt them. We'll get into the. I stand corrected. We'll get into the details. And I was going to ask you later on what the difference is between foster parenting and adoption. But, but I wanted to start with kind of the punchline of the whole story, which is you are a person of upper middle class status. You're highly educated. You have access to money and perhaps even more significant. You're bu- I know you to be bureaucratically savvy. When you're dealing with bureaucratic systems, you know how to handle it in a way that many, many people, certainly poor people don't. Uh, If anybody could succeed in raising kids, it would be you. Uh, You invested a great deal of resources and time in these kids. Uh, And and I'll add one other thing. You knew what you're doing. You had raised a couple of kids of your own as well. So you weren't a novice at this. And, uh, and still, it was a story replete with difficulty. That, that's my big takeaway of, of what you did. But what do we, but back- I, I would agree with you, except for the part about that it was the agencies. It was way more than the agencies. You know, I, I would say that given the laws and the, you you know, at the time and given um, the experience of the children, the agencies end up being the least of the problem. But- Let's tell, now we we, we rewind to the back and tell the whole story. Okay, so I was married to a doctor. We lived in the Biltmore and, and somebody asked me, uh, I was on a bunch of, I, I owned the Hardaway Marketing Services and somebody on the Phoenix Community Alliance board asked me to take a girl to lunch from a marginalized family and, um, and give her some advice because she had been held back once from eighth grade. So I was like, oh, no problem. You know, I'll do that. How old is she? at the time? She was 13. Okay. So I went to lunch with her and I took her to like Garcia's because she wanted Mexican food. And I noticed that she ordered practically everything on the menu. And she put, I bought the lunch. We had a nice chat. She put all the food in a bag to go. I later found out that she later, she, she didn't have any food in her house. And that she put the food, you know, in a bag so she could share it with her, um, 
brothers and sisters. So fast forward a little bit, um, I paid for her to go to Army ROTC in high school, but she dropped out. And, and I thought, well, this is over. And then her little brother showed up at my office one day and said, Jennifer didn't want your help, but I do. Will you mentor me? And, and can, I, can you talk to me? And so I, I said, of course. And I became very involved with this boy. And how old is he at the time? Um, at the time, he was 10. He is now 37. I am still involved with him. But, I mean, that is the punchline, and I shouldn't have skipped ahead to it. But anyway, I, I, I brought Jerry, little Jerry, home to my husband, who I have to call Big Jerry, because unfortunately, both their names were Jerry. And Big Jerry, being a doctor, said, um, there's not too much I can do for him. I can't drive him around, can't give him medical attention, I can't, because I'm licensed. And in order for us to help him on any long-term basis, um, you know, I can't do it, I'll lose my license. So I figured out that in order to provide any lasting help to him, we had to become foster parents. So we started going through the foster parent system. The foster parent licensing system had never seen anyone like us because they routinely did things like go to your house and see if your water was pure. Um, go see if, you know, you had food in your own refrigerator. Uh, go see, you know, what your house looked like. And the inspectors and caseworkers that came to our house at the Biltmore, you know, they were like blown away because no middle class person ever takes a kid into their house. A middle-class person writes a check. And, but, and, and, and yeah, my image of a typical foster parent is- uh, uh, Somebody taking four, four foster kids in so that they don't have to work. And, they, and they get paid something to do it. Yeah. I don't so know. it's kind of a job. Yeah, it's kind of a job, that's right. So most foster parents take, take in like four kids, you know, and that provides a job. So, and remember my information is out of date. This was what it was like um, 30, 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I found out that he had a little brother who was six and a little sister who was eight. And I, we tried to take them all into our house after um, they got taken away by Child Protective Services. This is why I say the agencies are not at fault, you know, necessarily at fault, because I immediately, when I got to know little Jerry, got in a dialogue with Child Protective Services and Child Protective Services um, said, yes, we've been watching that family and we're watching to see, you know, what the deal is. Well, the deal is the father, um, committed suicide. And so there, were, there was no food in the house and all the food that came into the house got sold for crack. The food stamps, the ben benefits, you know, this was in the time when you didn't get a snap card, you got a food stamp card with actual food stamps. Mm -hmm. and they, which, they, which one could sell. Yeah, and the mother sold the food stamps and the kids never had any food. 
Well, eventually Child Protective Services came in and, and swooped the kids away. But when they swooped the kids away, um, J little Jerry was already in my house, but the other two kids went to a group home on like 23rd Avenue in Indian School that had like like a wrought iron fence around it. And it was, it was you know, tremendously institutional. And my husband and I went over there to visit and the, the little girl who at the time was, as I said, about eight, when I don't behave, they put me down on the floor and they sit on me to make me stop. And I was, you know, of course I was like, I never heard of anything like that, N none of it. We'll pick up the story when we return in just a moment. Let the river run, let all the dreamers wake the nation. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back with Francine Hardaway. She's in the middle of the story of becoming a foster mom. She right. encounters your... If, if I can telescope this story a little bit. Once we saw the two little kids in the group home, we understood that that could not stand. I mean, that was just the worst potential life for a kid. So Jerry and I, Big Jerry and I undertook to become foster parents. And I already told you how they went to our house and looked to see if we had running water and if in the, the, the Biltmore. <laughs> yeah, in Biltmore. And if the water if the water was clean and if the cupboards had, had uh, the potential to have locks on them and so on and so forth. Anyway, we obviously passed all the tests and we became actual foster parents. And we did How long did that take? How long did it take to get you certified? Oh, well, this is the part where people who understand how to navigate state agencies um, win. Um, the, I knew the governor at the time. And <laughs> okay. The governor sent a person to our house to give us the classes individually. And then we took the test at home. And I don't, it took a very short time. I mean, it was telescoped, but it would be much longer for anyone else. And it, so uh, we decided um, that the girl, that we couldn't take all the kids into our house because you have to have um, enough bedrooms for each sex of kids. So um, we could take the boys but we couldn't take the girls. So the girl went to, Amanda, the girl went to a group home um, and the boys were in our house. Fast forward, my husband is diagnosed with prostate cancer and he's near dying. Um, little Jerry is at about the end of high school. In fact, he had been doing so well that he had gone to high school and he was going to Gateway Community College at the same time. And so 
we decided we had to give up the young kid who was maybe 10 at that time. So we got a foster home, another foster home for him. And Big Jerry proceeded to die of prostate cancer, which was an awful situation, but had a tremendous impact on my ability as a foster parent. So then I, I had to battle the system to get to keep the kids after Jerry died. Because you're no longer a couple? Because we're no longer a couple. And, I'm, and I was like, no, you don't understand. I mean, I'm this kid's parent. Their, their you know, birth mother, they don't see. And so it's not like they were going in and out of foster care with a birth mother that was trying to get her act together. They were with a birth mother who had used them for their benef the benefits that came with them. You know, the food stamps came with them. The age-dependent children came with them. And so she was, you know, she was- They're cute. supporting her in effect. They were supporting her, that's right. And besides, they didn't want to go back. They knew what the score was. Anyway, I had a, I had a lot of issues in which the foster care system was of no help whatsoever. And um, the oldest kid, little Jerry, ended up going to prison, drugs. And, and the, this was the one who was succeeding in high school, started was college. The one who was almost on to college. He was taking, you know, contemporary uh, high school and college classes. And he just spiraled. Second father he had lost. Mm -hmm. Second, you know, so he just spiraled down and um, he went to prison. And Amanda, the girl who wasn't in my home, um, got into trouble also in the group home that she was in. And the only one that really was in a stable group home was the littlest one. So what have I learned from this? You can't just address everything with love because it's very complicated how kids are brought up from birth to five. And I got all of these kids after age five and they, they basically had um, they were living in what we now know is the, the amygdala, the hindbrain. And even though I loved them and I lavished things on them and I, I tried as hard as I could, Amanda quit school after eighth grade, Josh quit after high school, and Jerry ended up getting his GED in prison. And I felt like the biggest failure on the face of the earth until the neuroscience publications began to talk about early childhood education. And then I realized there was nothing I could have done, but it took 25 years for me to get there to the point where I didn't feel totally responsible. And that's why I wrote the book which is still available on Amazon. I, I was going to say that, I just checked. It's called, uh, it's called Foster Mom. Foster. Author is Francine Hardaway. I found it more easily by uh, author name than I, did, uh, than I did by the title. Well, it's not exactly a bestseller, but, um, but it's well worth reading. I've read it. It's a great, re a great read and an instructive one. 
It's and well worth reading if you're thinking about foster parenting. We'll go on to a couple of other things, including after the break, your sense of what, if anything, has changed in the system since then. Uh, we'll return after the half hour break uh, in the Think Tank with Francine Hardwick. The the morning lights, the streets that lead them, and sirens call them on with a song. Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Okay, we're back with Francine Harder. We were discussing the process of, of, of becoming a foster mom of a couple of underprivileged, several underprivileged kids. Uh, I have two questions for, and I'll, I'll leave it up to you how to, how to deal with them. One is if uh, you would care to sort of underscore what it all means from your perspective of uh, how we handle kids in a situation like that. And the other question, and you can do these in either order, what if anything has happened with the system since the 15 or so, 20 years since you since you did this? I'll do the system one first because it's simpler to deal with. I now have a friend working in the foster care system, which I didn't at the time. And uh, not that much has changed with the system, except there's less money for things. And so, so maybe, there's, um, maybe there's a few outside organizations that help and give foster kids extra things, but there's so much. First of all, my foster kids were white. And everyone always thinks of foster kids as being black or Mexican, you know, or his, Hispanic. But it's not just a, um, a Hispanic or a black problem. It's a societal problem. And it's, it's a societal problem. Drugs is what the mothers are suffering from. And until we have a way of dealing with, um, I guess now it's opioid addiction. Um, we're not gonna solve this problem where there are all these kids in the foster care system. And, and I'm sure there's more domestic violence than I know. There's more everything than I know because I've been out of it for a long time. And my foster kids with whom I am still in touch um, have actually sorted out their lives pretty well by this time. When I left you before the last break, I was feeling like I was an incredible failure. And then I wrote that book because little Jerry was in prison and Amanda was, um, I don't know, living with some ne'er-do-well, you know, and I didn't know what was going to happen. Well, what actually did happen is that some of the stuff that I thought didn't sink in actually did. And as adults, these kids are completely and totally grateful to me for what I did. And 
little Jerry, you know, who's six foot four, got married and had two children and learned how to father um, from my husband, Big Jerry. And Amanda um, is, is now working in a long-term care home and she has a job that she absolutely loves because she loves taking care of people. And this job gives her the opportunity for that. And Josh is uh, driving a delivery truck. So I have no, nobody on drugs, you know, and, and I have um, nobody on the dole, so to speak. So my goal was to create citizens out of these foster children. And to some degree, um, I've succeeded. Now, Jerry is again in prison. And the reason he is in prison this time is the same as last time. Um, when he got a divorce, he went off the rails. And when he went off the rails, he was afraid to tell me or see me. And so he's in there now. But when he comes back, out because he had gotten his GED and begun a plumbing apprenticeship. When he gets out, he will be able to work as a plumber. And he's old enough now to where I don't think this is going to happen to him again. It wouldn't have happened this time if it weren't for the divorce. But when these kids have these, now they're known as adverse childhood experiences in their early years they can never completely recover. And it has to do with brain development. And the last thing I am is a, you know, a neuroscientist, but it means that the, the neocortex, which is what allows people to think ahead and plan ahead and think about the consequences of things doesn't develop very easily in kids that are um, subjected to a lot of instability as young children. And, and, and that's the thing that, the, the fundamental thing about people succeeding in life, it's like the old uh, uh, marshmallow story, you know. Uh, the, 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 the oh, you mean the one, one marshmallow or two marshmallows? Yeah, one marshmallow now or two in 15 minutes. The exactly. ability to defer gratification is what most of our lives are about in yeah. you know, successful middle-class people. At some level, you have to learn to do that or else you don't get anywhere. But, you know, there's a, and I, I'm, I'm finished telling the story of the foster kids now, but I'm, I'm going to say one thing to you, which is that now those of us who do get that ability to defer gratification often defer it for too long. We're in the opposite position. We're like, oh, so busy looking at tomorrow and saving for retirement and yada, yada, yada. And we have lost the ability to enjoy ourselves in the moment. So now there's this big, and I'm gonna call it an epidemic, even, even though I'm part of it, or perhaps because I'm part of it, of um, Buddhism and mindfulness and yoga and meditation and you know the idea is to teach people who have been taught deferred gratification all of their lives that they ought to be in this moment and get as much out of this moment as they can. So there's some pendulum in there in the brain 
And again, no expert here, but I've lived long enough, you know, in a month, I'm going to be 80. And there's something that you learn from time on the planet. You know, there's some things you just learn from keeping your eyes open um, and looking around you. And there is a middle ground between what the foster kids do very often, which is not know if they're going to live past 21. And so, you know, go for the short term, whether it's a drug hit or robbery or, a, you know, whatever. And the long term, uh, people who toil until the last minutes of their lives, which sometimes uh, occur unexpectedly without them having lived the way they really thought they should or could or wanted to. The latter, however, is not much of a, it's a personal, more of a personal problem than a societal problem. Right. I mean, those folks, those of us, all of us in this room uh, who, uh, who deferred perhaps too much are, are, have not become a burden on society. No. And a problem for other people to deal with. It's a problem for ourselves to learn to loosen gonna, a little bit. I know, but I'm not going to let you say a burden on society about those kids mm -hmm. because they are not, they didn't mean to be a burden on society. You know, that we have, you know, messed up, um, messed up ideals about who should have children and who shouldn't. And, you know, nobody tells people what it costs to bring up a child. And some people, you know, get pregnant accidentally. Like, like Jerry, Amanda, and Josh's mom, she had a child, at, her first child at 16, okay? Um, her mother had, a had her child at 16. And, and, and it's so what you do. And it's what you, it's how you live. And so the one thing that I did do for Amanda that was, I think, a triumph was, um, and, and your audience may not like this, but I'm going to tell you anyway that I did it. I took her to Planned Parenthood when she got pregnant at 16 because she did. And the father was not the right father, in my humble opinion. So I took her to Planned Parenthood and got her the morning after pill. And when she had her oldest child, her oldest child is 12 now, and she had him when she was 23. And she thanks me every day for not allowing her, you know, to have that baby when, you know, when she got pregnant the first time. Because Might be life changing, not only for her, but all of her subsequent children. On the street. She now has three little boys. They're adorable. Her life isn't perfect, but she is a fantastic mother. And she, well, she's able to take care of them. We'll return in just a moment, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to ventilate on anything you want. We'll change the topic with Francine Hardaway in the Think Tank. Think Tank. 
KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back with Francine Hardaway, and we have been discussing her book, Foster Mom, which is still available on Amazon. I suggest if you look for it, look for it under her name, and it'll pop right up. Uh, but I promised her an audience and, uh, and a free hand here. We've done three segments on Foster Mom. Francine, what's bugging you? Voter suppression. I grew up in a democracy. And I grew up in a time when everyone was encouraged to vote. And what has happened, well, actually I didn't, but the Voting Rights Act of 1965 spoiled me because it put me in a place where everyone was encouraged to vote. And I'm just stunned to find out that there are something like 300 bills going through legislatures in something like 32 states uh, that are all intended to make voting more difficult because someone has gotten the ridiculous idea that there was voter fraud in the last election. And my comment on that is whether there was or there wasn't, what we need is more voters, not fewer voters. And so I, I've been watching very closely. As you know, I've been on this new app, Clubhouse. And there are a lot of clubs on Clubhouse. And one of them is called After We Vote. And it's basically a civics club. And it uh, talks about, it's transpartisan, meaning the people who are in it are from all parties and no parties, which you'd be surprised how many young people do not have nor want a, a party affiliation. So the, there's, um, there's a big issue. Okay, so there's, there is a big issue with potential voter suppression. And I, this club is trying to prevent it by doing a national and even international effort to preserve democracy. And I'm part of that for, for a long, you know, I'm not, and I go to it all the time and I try to figure out how is this going to impact Arizona? How it's going to impact Arizona is it could be the same as when we failed to observe Martin Luther King Day. In Georgia, they've already passed this legislation. And the legislation that's, that's, that went through the Georgia legislature has some things that make it much more difficult for people to vote. Well, here in Arizona, we've been doing mail-in voting for 20 years, and there's no, and we've been doing it successfully, and we've been doing it as a red state. So there's absolutely no reason to tamper with our voting system. I think it, you know, it seems to me that it's one of the most forward-looking there is. And if one of these bills passes through the Arizona legislature, it's going to fix something that isn't broken. And in terms of the consequence to the state, I'll tell a little anecdote. I belong to my primary professional association is something called American Association for Public Opinion Research. They came to Arizona for their annual meetings twice. The first of these two times was uh, during the Martin Luther, right after they committed the Martin Luther King controversy happened. And the second time they came here, 
we're in the midst of the furor over SB 1070, both of which produced boycotts and the like. And at that That's time, come back again. The president of the association made a statement. He said, "We will go to Afghanistan before we ever return <laughs> to Phoenix." Right. So we keep, you know. We keep making these mistakes, and when we make these mistakes, the economic development consequences are more far-reaching than anybody thinks, which is now what's happening to Georgia. Now, Georgia passed that bill, and everyone's all boycotting and writing letters and everything. They've already lost MLB. Who, who knows what, you know, what else they're going to lose? Wow. One of the most interesting reactions I've seen to this is by Greater Phoenix leadership. For those of you who don't I, recognize them. They wrote the letter. Yeah. They wrote the letter. I was so proud yeah. of them. These are the corporate leaders. Software. These are the, the heads of Intel and all of the major industries in the state. And by the way, this is a very, very conservative Republican group of business people. And they said, don't mess with the voting system. Exactly. And I was so proud of them because they get the picture. It's much bigger, you know, than than most people think it is, because it involves who moves in and out of which states, what businesses move in and out of what states. Arizona is now going gangbusters as a place for people, you know, for people to be. And you could ruin it in 10 seconds not only for the business community, but for all the small businesses that depend on those big businesses and for all the individuals who want jobs with opportunities. I mean, I don't understand why people don't realize this. I've been in this com business community as an out and out progressive for 40 years. The only one in most cases, the only out and out progressive. But as a, because I was that, I got to see the real Republicans, you know, the ones that lead the community, not the ones that, you know, that form the Pentagon, the Capitol, but the ones that lead the community. And they're not, they're not far right in the way that we now say far right and far left. They are responsible business leaders doing their best. And the fact that we can't get society to get the responsible people, people like me, the progressives who believe that we need more safety net and more, you know, more uh, justice, more social justice. Um, those people have always in Arizona been able to work with each other on, until maybe, you know, two, three years ago. Well, as one of the, uh, one of the members of GPL, Greater Phoenix Leadership, once said to me, we're, there was, the topic was education funding. And, you know, the quote, conservatives in the legislature want to starve it, you know, starve oh. the beast. And this corporate leader said, and again, very conservative Republican, he said, listen, I run a business. I understand if you don't make investments, you don't survive. Exactly. And that is why you have to invest in education, healthcare, infrastructure, all of these things. And you can't just say cut taxes and let everybody starve. Um, 
But as I say, I am a progressive. But I think that, and that to me, the point I'd make about that is that not all spending is the same. Some of it can be frivolous. You, everybody wants to cut that. But okay. some of it truly is, it's the seed corn. It, and it, some of it is investment and investment should be budgeted separately from. I agree, have me back anytime and I can rant and rave about this endlessly. There's nobody I'd rather listen to rant and rave than Francine Hardaway, thank you very much. By the way, uh, again, the book was Foster Mom and to reach me, uh, mikeoneal.org is the website and from there you'll find access to email and, and other social media. See you next week in the future. We're coming to the edge, running on the water, coming through the fog, your sons and daughters. We, the great and small, stand on a star and blaze a trail.